Hello, and welcome back to the UX and Growth Podcast. After a long hiatus, I'm so thrilled to be recording again, to be speaking to you all, to quickly bring you up to speed on what I've been up to and where we're going to be taking the show in the future. Um, first, about a year and a half ago, I accepted my dream job at Google, designing the future of Chrome. Uh, and since then, I've been working on our next billion user efforts in emerging markets. I've been focusing on growth with Gen Z, new tech and platforms for the open web like PWAs, as well as various privacy initiatives. And in order to take on this role, uh, that meant that I would be moving from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where I was based for quite some time, to Silicon Valley. So I'm now living in California, working from California. Uh, along with my work at Google, I'm also advising some early stage companies in the Sequoia Capital and Andreessen Horowitz portfolios. I've started a new podcast with Matthew House Barbie, who was actually an earlier guest on this show and an episode focused on SEO. That podcast is called Decrypting Crypto, where we are breaking down blockchain and cryptocurrency tech in easy to understand and digest ways. So if you're into that type of stuff, I'll drop a link in the description. And perhaps most importantly, my fiance, Paula, who I used to discuss a lot on the show uh, in reference to our adventures, is now my spouse. And so uh, she has moved here to the U.S. with me, um, and we are going through all of our the fun immigration stuff that I'm, I'm sure so many of you are familiar with. In terms of the show, I'm really excited about the future that we have laid out here. Uh, first, I will actually be meeting with Matt and Jeff in Boston fairly shortly because I'm going to be speaking at Inbound, HubSpot's annual event. So I'm continuing to stay engaged with the stuff that's happening there as well. And uh, we're going to bring them on the show. So I'm excited about that. And then in addition to this, we have some pretty cool topics coming up, including growth-driven copy, no-code or low-code design and development and the phenomena of super abs. So keep an ear out for that. But today we have a special episode. I wanted to do something cool for our first episode back. So I brought on my friend and co-worker, Hannah Lee. I am so thrilled today to be joined by my coworker and a designer that I admire, Hannah Lee. She's a designer here at Google, actually focusing on a wide range of things here at Chrome across our design systems. And I would say that she sits somewhere at the intersection of what you could classify as a unicorn designer, <laughs> that mythical designer that everybody thinks doesn't exist, but I'm starting to believe that maybe in a few people it does. So here, uh, over the course of the past six years that she's been at Google, she's taken a deep focus on visual interaction and engineering 
work. And she also infuses uh, what I find to be a very interesting spin on the business and the specific impact that our design work has on the metrics that keep Google running every day. Uh, Prior to being at Google, she was actually an art director at a host of world-class firms that you've probably heard of, ranging from Organic to Ogilvy, Firstborn, and Leo Burnett. And of course, that came along with a lot of really big-name clients like Intel, Walmart, IBM, JetBlue, Gillette, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, the list goes on. She has a BFA in design and philosophy, interesting combination, but it's actually one that, that I've, I've seen in uh, a bunch of designers that I've worked with. And, and uh, she earned that at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I'm trying to be as pretentious as possible. <laughs> yeah. like, maybe, what else can I minor in? That's the only that takes the least amount of credits. <laughs> philosophy. Now, fun fact, uh, one time Hannah and I were grabbing lunch and she said, let me tell you about my motorcycles. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, okay, I know that this is going to be a fun ride here. She's actually owned three motorcycles, uh, one of which she designed herself. Um, and there is a, a whole collection of photos that, that she has of these that maybe we could link to in the description here. But uh, Hannah is a multifaceted designer and human being. The first and two, because, <laughs> I mean, it's three because the first two were mistakes. So it's not like... Right. When are they not, not right in, in not some like respect? <laughs> Uh, but Hannah, it's so great to have you here on the podcast, especially for, you know, the first episode back after a long hiatus that um, we took. I, I found myself thinking, you know, who is like the coolest, most diverse oh and interesting person that I could bring on the show <laughs> as like a big splash for when we get back. And hands down, it was you. So thank you oh for joining me here. No, I think that's probably the best introduction. Can we end here? I think yeah. okay. I'm going to go now. So we have some pretty cool stuff to talk about today um, throughout Hannah's recent history here at Chrome in an episode that I would like to title Design at Planet Scale. I think that that's the easiest way to kind of sum this up. And Chrome, Chrome is one of those cases where I think it actually can claim that title of... Uh, demanding design at planet scale across this Mm. small 20 some odd designer team that we have. Um, This product, which has recently turned 10 years old, it's actually touching over 2 billion users around the world today. That's a pretty big number. Yeah, I remember the first time uh, during the team and being told that number is being this like the whole first month was just like, just paralysis is like what Uh do i do every decision like every decision you make you feel that impact of like okay two billion people two billion people it's constant um but then you realize it's there's like six six week launch cycles and that a lot of the changes you make are reverberable and then you can experiment and you're surrounded with a team of brilliant people who are make sure that you know that we we test everything and everything launches simply so that that sense of responsibility is still there, but the pressure and the paralysis of like, oh no, what do we do? We mess up mm-hmm. is is not as is, is not as bad. Yes, yeah. I mean you have people like Austin to make sure. Oh, I, don't, yeah, right. I don't mess up. <laughs> I'm the one everybody's got to watch out for. <laughs> I have caused so many angry Reddit threads. No, oh my God. <laughs> if 
Reddit was a measure of success. I don't know. It's true. So this is arguably at this point, one of the most visible and widely used software products ever created. And so what we found is that there really is no such thing as a typical Chrome user, right? Mm. Uh, over a billion users are going to come online in the next couple of years. And actually most of that growth is going to happen in emerging markets like India, Indonesia, Nigeria, yep. Brazil. And these markets are very different from yeah. established markets. And because of that, they dramatically influence new design decisions and processes uh, that affect audiences that aren't typically represented by, you know, the types of people that you're seeing on a subreddit. Um, yeah. But yeah, I have to agree with you that there is an immense responsibility here, but also um, a certain safety and comfort that you feel in the fail safes and the teams that are built right. around this product. I mean, one of one of the reasons why I love Chrome, what makes it like to me feel that fail safeness is that we're held accountable by the entire world. We're open source, right? So anyone in the world can file a bug saying, hey, why did you do this? Yeah. And I think that accountability is what makes Chrome good. Yeah. But it is interesting. Like I remember the first time almost two years now ago where the number finally tipped to be over a majority of our users now are MBU users. Yeah. I, I That is a thing that I, I think I will never fully be able to wrap my mind around the sheer size and scale of this product and its audience. And to realize, um, you know, we, we go on in-market research trips with our incredible mm. small but mighty UX research team here. Uh, a recent one that I attended was in Kenya and, and working in these right. people's homes with them and seeing how they use these devices and realizing uh, it's fundamentally different yes. than how users in uh, established markets perceive software. Um, and that, that, that is actually the norm now. Yeah. That is how it is. Yeah, you know? that is the majority. And that's, it's, it's different. I mean, I think it's always every designer's challenge when you're, when you're not the target demographic anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's, you lose that sense of like, okay, I'm not designing for myself anymore. I'm not designing for people like me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a higher bar. Like you're, you, constantly have to put yourself out of your own shoes and i think that that challenge makes it is a uh, is something that like we're always thinking about like finding better ways to do because uh, like at the end of the day like unless i actually live there i'm never going to 100 percent like understand the the nuances the day-to-day -day. yeah um so i think again like relying on other folks who have or like other folks who are deeply dedicated, like, you know, having some, uh, now we have like UX designers are dedicated to this because yes, um, I know that I'm not going to be as good. Like just recognizing that like, we're not going to be good at this um, if we just kind of do it on the side, right? This is, this requires a lot of time and thought. Yeah, absolutely. I We used to, e even up until recently, we had that distinction internally between NBU, next billion users, or emerging markets design, and uh, established markets design. Mm -hmm. um, and now we've kind of realized that all design is NBU design. You know, you think of like um, that lesson that, that comes out of realizing, oh my gosh, I'm designing for 
the, the majority of people that I'm designing for, like I have almost nothing in common with them. Yeah. Um, and how humbling that is to realize yeah. how much you are not part of the equation. Yeah. Um, that is a lesson that I think is important for every designer to learn. Yeah. Uh, and it's something we've harped on in previous episodes of this podcast. And you may think, you know, that's not applicable to me. I'm not designing for two or three billion people. Uh, but the reality is that once you get up past, you know, just a handful of users, that actually applies. We, we've we've right. even found that many of the things that we've learned from our NBU markets, like things that we learned in Kenya or in Indonesia or in Brazil, uh, the pains that those users were experiencing are also being experienced in middle rural America. Exactly. So I think the way, you know, I've, I've changed my focus on lens of like, oh, I'd be user. People are really far away and they're somewhere else and they're nothing like me is, is, is like at this scale, like what it always kind of, kind of comes down to is like focusing on not the, not as much the locale, but the, the humanness. Like, mm-hmm. What as a human being is something that uh, anyone can get, regardless of what your background is, you know, how you're accessing the web, what device, where you are, what language you speak. Try to think on a universal level um, and say, like, if this was a hu- any human being in the world can just pick this up and get it. I think that's always the dream, right? That's always like yeah. the UX dream is, um, I mean, we do think about, like, being more like personalized on a, on a local basis. Like what can we personalize to make this easier for you based on the information we have? I think that's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of just the ease of use and just like the ability to just pick it up and understand what to do, I think the goal is always like, even if, even if an alien were to come down, this is like, that's like how I challenge. If somebody who's never been on planet earth pick this up uh-huh. would they understand how to use it <laughs> like i know it's that's literally unrealistic which is why i think unicorns like again the perfect term um <laughs> one of the things that like kind of blew my mind when i first joined the team about chrome was that you have this perception of it just being like a display it just this is the thing that just gives me access to the web once i recognized uh, the amount of effort and time and energy put into like building this thing yeah all the engineers I mean, again, it's open source. So literally engineers from all over the world, developers all over the world contributed to this for the past 10 years is crazy. And sitting down with engineers and seeing all the time and effort, it's like discovering a twin turbo like V8 engine in like a like a Volvo. <laughs> You're like, why is this here? Like, this is like the, the world's most sophisticated, secure browsing tool. And... It, it looks like a box in a box. Yeah. And it was almost intentionally designed to be that way because we don't want it to be like this flashy, you know, attention grabbing thing. We wanted it to be invisible. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of just this sort of like common question that I think we tend to get maybe, you know, when you're talking to your friends about what you do or your mom. <laughs> And that's like, well, what do you actually do? Like, what do you design? Why does Chrome need a designer? It's it's just a browser, right? Like, Yeah, what do you actually design? Yeah. And then usually I kind of sit there and I'm like, you know, that's a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing is that what you what you find when you start to work on this incredible huge product is that Chrome's UI is simple and familiar. 
And that's intentional. It's intended to be a humble window to the web or UI that is designed to get out of the way. And there is a fantastic essay that Hannah wrote, which I'll link to in the description where she dives into some of this stuff. And one of the things that you, you mentioned is like this, this charter that Chrome has that's very simple, but I think it really sums up the design philosophy and the engineering philosophy, which is content, not Chrome. This idea that on the surface, Chrome should be as simple as possible, but under the hood, it's actually very complex. And that's what the designer does. They distill something that is extremely robust and complex into a simple interface that anybody can use. Over 11 people come online for the first time every second. That's a million people a day. This interface, it is alien, you know, um, and, and they have to be able to use it. It has to make sense to them. And that's really the, that's the challenge that we face, right? Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons what was actually like, what drew me to Chrome in a kind of like a, an emo <laughs> cheesy way is just like Chrome was like, Chrome kind of the actual product mirrored kind of my philosophy for design. Like the whole content not Chrome is also like I had a I have a very kind of I guess old school traditional way of thinking about design and typography specifically as like the design should be a, a good design to me um, is something that really lets the content shine. Um, so like for a, a metaphor would be like typography. If the typography is like super crazy and like stylish and you can't read it, then that to me is not really it's a indulgent. successful design. Yeah. Um, yeah, it isn't. And I guess successful is based on the interpretation, but to me, like that doesn't really communicate what I think the intended message was. Um, so to have this uh, browser kind of do the same thing for the web, um, like, there's this essay I always, I always like hint back to, but I love it because of the, the it was the first kind of essay that I read that I may help me understand typography mm -hmm. was Beatrice Ward's Crystal Goblet. And she just basically talked about a wine glass and why it's designed that way. Like a wine glass is designed to be clear because you want, you want to see the color of the wine, right? That's important. Is it white or is it red? Mm -hmm. And then on a very basic level, the stem is really long. So you can hold the, the glass without getting your fingerprints all over the glass or and also so you can actually see it so like when you're holding it you're not actually covering the the glass so you can actually see you still see the liquid and how much is left and then at the very end this the base of the wine glass is really wide so it's secure like you're not worried about it tipping over or like someone's gonna bump into it because you know it's wine you know you want to drink it right mm -hmm. <laughs> so like um same thing with typography, like that metaphor always stuck into my mind. I think that's fantastical. I, I, I love thinking about functional beauty and I tend to find, and maybe this is why I'm a UX designer instead of like, you know, an artist or something like that. I tend to find that the most beautiful things are also the most functional things, you know, and maybe it is the function that affords it some beauty. But if you think about a wine glass, um, that's a beautiful object, you know? Yeah. The same goes for typography. I think that some of, some of the easiest to read, the most functional typography, the most accessible typography, uh, is the most attractive and beautiful. Yeah. I think the, 
you know, the good invisible part about Chrome is being that, you know, crystal goblet. But the bad invisible is when, when you get so used to something that you don't really see the flaws anymore or you don't mm -hmm. really see the need for change anymore. Everyone got used to this box within the box. They didn't question it anymore because we, we use desktop. We got used to desktop. We saw that box everywhere. Yeah. That box almost became invisible to us, literally, mm -hmm. because we got so used to it. We never questioned it. The beginning of the journey was literally sitting down with engineers being like, how did we get here? And what was actually pretty amazing while like, getting a deep dive and sitting with the engineers and kind of looked into everything was um, just how much of, the, of this redesign was only just removing things. There was over like, what, 14 different shades of material grade just for 14-point type <laughs> was ridiculous. It was just... If I recall correctly, we had 95 different distinct grays <laughs> yes. in the product, and you narrowed it down to eight. So yeah, that was that was insane. Because like the more I d like dug deeper, I would I would constantly find like another gray, and then another mm -hmm. gray, and another gray. I'm like, why is this? And so uh, the first few, you're just like, yeah, of course. Just you know, this one's a lighter gray for a secondary text, and this one's darker for it's like more primary text. And you're like, wait. But that one's only slightly darker than the other one. Mm -hmm. And so the deeper I dug, the more I realized, like, why are there so many? It was yeah. just like blew my mind. And in hindsight, what made this update so elegantly simple um, and easier to, to communicate to the engineers was that we were just reducing things. Like that's something that's really simple and easy to communicate to an engineer saying, hey, we're using over 98 shades of gray for all of our text. Mm -hmm. Like, let's, can we just like simplify it down to this? Yeah. Um, because I think that the challenge with like a redesign is if, if I had started the other way around, if I had redesigned all of Chrome and then sat down and so show the engineers here, I want to change all these things, all these things. And this is the new design. Um, it would be a much harder battle because all the little design decisions that I made along the way would be harder to communicate. When you simplify a redesign down to like really simple, like small steps, um, the end result could be really massive. But if you mm -hmm. start at the other end, being like, I want to change all these things because yep. it looks better, it's a much harder sell. Like a lot of those work came from me just kind of trying to create a sticker sheet and like and noticing like, wow, we have why are we using four different icons for the same X button? Why are we using <laughs> and I just like, constantly just noticing all these things and just been filing kind of small bugs, being like, maybe we should just use one. But in and of itself. Um, if you think about the scale and massiveness of, again, Chrome, 2 billion users and the features you want to build out, changing an X button is not a huge deal, yeah. right? But when you look at it collectively, like if we cleaned all of that up, this is what it could look like. And once I went and I presented it that way to the engineers and to our PMs and to our team, then the redesign seemed only logical to do. I think that what you're talking about here is an important learning, um, which is that whenever you're wanting to massively consolidate and overhaul a UI, especially on a large and complex product, it's important to begin with reduction. You are refactoring our UI. And there's an old episode, if, if you go back into our backlog, uh, called Design Debt. When you have 90 plus different shades of gray, four different X icons, you're dealing with design debt from a complicated and nuanced 
product. And also another thing I'm picking up from what you're saying here is just the utter importance of, of having a strong working relationship with your engineer and understanding the impact, the real world impact of your work. I think of this last trip that I, I took to Kenya, just a real quick story. Um, you know, we, we were going into people's homes and working with them on their devices to understand how they use the product. And this uh, particular girl that we uh, visited, she was living on less than a dollar a day. Um, she had she had been orphaned from a young, young age, didn't know what her birthday was, um, but she was very good at using her phone. And um, she had actually started her own business on her phone. Um, and when we were asking her about like, you know, how she runs her business and what she likes to do in her free time, um, she said, you know, I, I, uh, I read a lot about politics. I read a lot about entrepreneurship. Um, and I use my phone to do that because the closest library is a 30 minute walk away. And it was that moment that I realized that the decisions that we are making and the access that this product is providing it's not just for people to play games, uh, although a lot of people do do that, or to look at cat images. Uh, it actually has a material impact on people's lives to the point of providing economic mobility. Right, exactly. For a lot of people all over the world, this is how yeah. they make their living. And that's, again, the massive amount of responsibility we carry. It's one of the reasons uh, why it I, you know, I love being on this team is that there are a lot of moments where, you know, we thought, hey, it's going to take us a week to go through every single image asset, but we could potentially make our APK, our, our app download size, half a megabyte smaller, Yeah, which is literally comes down to dollar amounts, right? If you think about data usage and how expensive data is in like other parts of the world, yes, half a megabyte is huge. So once we understood that, we spent the time to do it because we we understood the value that that had to our users. Yeah. And so to me, sitting down in a spreadsheet and going through like 500 X, like PNGs <laughs> at HDMI, XXHTPI, XCPI, <laughs> like, and just going through that every single, like was to me, like I enjoyed doing that because I knew the faster I did that, the faster Chrome's APK size would be smaller and the cheaper it would be for a lot of people yes. to download. Like This is design. Yeah, absolutely. Like the thought that Chrome literally might be someone's only way of accessing the web, right? Maybe they have a small, tiny device and no other browser supports that device anymore. For some reason, like because of the carrier or the, the, the device that they have, they can't update their version of Android any further. That thought is what keeps me going and makes, mm -hmm. makes me always kind of access like someone, if we change this one thing, someone might not have access to the web anymore is always a thought in the back of my mind. Because I think to me, that is actually what makes me feel really kind of fulfilled with what I do. And ultimately, I love being on this team. I love the work I do because that kind of impact I can have, I think is a privilege um, to have that because yeah. it's something that I absolutely enjoy. Like when you're in a room full of people um, and you go to work every day and your meetings consist with people who care about this, who are trying to make the right decisions to help these types of people, you don't dread meetings anymore. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't have to go to this meeting. Because you want to meet with them and you want to talk to them and you want to talk to your engineers because you understand like, this is what we can be doing 
um, what can we be doing? We're always yes. wanting new ideas. So work isn't just like, oh, I have to go to this boring meeting anymore. When you're in a, in a room full of people who really care about users, um, you enjoy being in that meeting because mm -hmm. you also care and you, you guys genuinely want to try to come to a solution. So I think what uh, I really want to do a better job of is um, being more transparent and being more open source with design. Like Chrome mm. is wonderful because it's open source. Mm -hmm. uh, our code is open source. But um, what I'm really hoping to do in this next year is be more open source with our design our design process, the things that we go through, the things that question, the mistakes that we've made, uh, all of that. I want to be more transparent. If it, if it can help other people in the world, I think we should do it. That's, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I think that this is one excellent step in uh, that you are taking in that direction of many steps. And so we are so fortunate to have had you on the show. And thank you for the wonderful and thought-provoking conversation. I think this is just the perfect way to kick things back off. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>